Florida Matters is supported by WUSF members just like you. Your donation of $5 or $25 will help ensure public radio thrives. And thanks to Candy Olson, an additional $50 will be added to your donation. Visit WUSF.org match to maximize your gift today. This is Florida Matters. I'm Robin Sessingham. The 2019 state legislative session ended Saturday. The budget includes hundreds of millions of dollars for Everglades and freshwater springs restoration and for affordable housing, a large increase in education funding, and help for the hurricane-ravaged panhandle. Governor Ron DeSantis says we have put people over politics. But politics was still very much in the limelight, such as in legislation prohibiting local governments from becoming sanctuary cities. In fact, in legislation prohibiting local governments from doing lots of things. Here to discuss some of the highlights from the session are Janelle Irwin. Janelle is a reporter for Florida Politics. Florida Politics is a statewide new media platform covering campaigns, elections, government policy, and lobbying in Florida. And she previously reported for the Tampa Bay Business Journal. And in Tallahassee from the studio of WFSU is Steve Bosquet, a columnist and news analyst for the South Florida Sun Sentinel and Orlando Sentinel. Thanks both for being with me. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you. So let me ask you both, there's so much to get to, but the first thing I want to know from each one of you is what is one piece of legislation that you think will really have a big impact on our everyday lives, on the everyday lives of residents? Janelle, I'll ask you first. I think it's education. We saw what is a win for some people and what is very much a loss for other people. If you're either on one side or you're on the other, there's no gray area. And that really comes down to play with the tax vouchers for students to go to private schools. This was an issue that up until this bill, students who were in underperforming schools from low-income families. They could use the McKay tax credit scholarships to go to a private school. But there was about uh, 13,000 child backlog in that. So lawmakers sought to fix that by taking money from the actual recurring state revenue rather than using tax credits. So that's going to pull money from public education, ostensibly. Let me ask you the same thing, Steve, something that could affect just our everyday lives. Yeah, I think something they did that will affect the everyday lives of Floridians in ways that are not yet fully apparent is the bill they passed that makes texting while driving a primary offense behind the wheel of a car. Because, let's face it, it is dangerous, deadly behavior. Most of us who are honest with ourselves uh, would admit we've done it, and we shouldn't be doing it. And it's probably, possibly, hopefully a precursor to next year and the sessions beyond when the legislature may make the law even stricter. The law in Florida is still a lot less strict than it is in most states. We live in a complete car culture in this state, as everyone knows. We're behind the wheel of a car constantly. People are texting constantly. And we're going to start seeing stories about people getting cited on the streets of Florida for texting while driving. And I I know there's an argument out there, there will be, that police have more important things to do than to cite people for texting while driving. But the politicians in the state keep bragging about how the crime rate is at a 50-year low. So police should have time to enforce the traffic laws of the state in a responsible way. The publicity about this and cases popping up all over the state in localities about people being cited for texting while driving is going to 
bring very important and valuable public attention to this issue. So there's real life, and then there's political theater. We have both. So what do you see, Steve, having the biggest ripples in state politics? Another way of asking you is, what do some of these bills say about the political makeup of Florida? First of all, the ban on sanctuary cities, which is basically not much more than a bunch of red meat for the Republican Party base. There are no sanctuary cities in this state. And they took out the most draconian parts of that bill, like severe fines on local elected officials or law enforcement agencies who don't comply. They took that out. The other thing they did that's of political significance is they imposed new restrictions on people who run statewide ballot initiatives to amend the state constitution. And the whole intention of that, whether they admit it publicly or not, is to make it more difficult for people like John Morgan who, having succeeded with medical marijuana, is now going to try to amend the Constitution next year to put in effect a $15 an hour minimum wage in this state. And if you talk to progressives anywhere in the state, the thing that they will always tell you about the annual legislative session under a Republican-controlled legislature is it's the most dangerous time of the year. And people, if you're of that political mindset, this time around are saying that this is the worst of the worst. And Steve mentioned a couple of great examples. I think the teacher guardian issue is another example of that, where you have some pretty staunch opposition from what should be powerful groups, teachers unions, things like that. Lots of school districts saying, no, we don't want our teachers armed. But yet they put in a provision that says that individual districts can, if they want to, opt into this program and go through a 144-hour training process to have volunteer teachers actually be armed in the classroom. And that was incredibly controversial. So I think that that's another point there where you have the conservative NRA side of things versus the progressive wing that wants to scale back on the amount of guns that we have floating around out there. So on home rule, you brought up that the Guardian program and local districts will have the opportunity to either implement that or not. They will have the decision to do that. But Steve, you talked a lot about Tallahassee state government versus home rule, local rule. And you actually wrote about this and put together a remarkable list. I'm going to read it now because I think it's great. You wrote, this session alone, lawmakers, Republicans mostly, were determined to override local regulations on trees, plastic straws, short-term vacation rentals, vegetable gardens, legal notices, impact fees, employment screenings, telecommunications, wetlands, memorials, monuments, occupational licenses, and marketing tobacco products. Quite a few of those proposals did not become law, thanks largely to the Senate's restraint. So... We saw a lot of that state rule versus local rule in this session. Steve? We sure did. I also said in that column for the Sun Sentinel that it wasn't very Republican to govern that way because this creates this sort of octopus-like massive central bureaucracy in Tallahassee that knows the right thing to do for everybody. I don't know what happened to the wise uh, conservative idea that the government that governs best is that level of government closest to the people. Taxpayers, people, citizens of this country know, I think, inherently that you basically got four levels of government that you pay taxes to. Your city, the county in Florida, the state, and the federal government. Pretty simple. It seems like with each of those gradations, the government gets a lot bigger and a lot less responsive and a lot more remote, ending, of course, with a dismally unresponsive Congress in Washington. So your best chance of having a government that works for you is City Hall 
in wherever, Temple Terrace, Fort Lauderdale, Jacksonville. And this idea of trampling on local home rule is really a reflection in part of what we're seeing happening all over the country, which is cities are getting bluer and bluer and more liberal and more democratic at a time when state governments like the one in Florida remain under firm Republican control. So they're philosophically going in two very different directions. Let me put it to you another way, though, because you started to say the government that governs best governs locally, and I thought you were going to say governs least. And I do think that if the overriding philosophy in Tallahassee is to limit government, then aren't their actions consistent with the desire to limit government, to limit regulations? That Ironically, they're using government to limit government because they're saying to all of these cities, no, you can't impose all of these regulations and all of these rules willy-nilly. The philosophy could be seen as a desire to have less government. You quote Jose Oliva as saying that uniformity in law is important in trying to bring in businesses to the state. And he has a point. He said he's got 30 cities in in his district. And if you're trying to bring a corporation into the state or a business into the state and they have to look at all these different entities and the way they'll be regulated, it's harder than having one uniform rule that they abide by. I, I see the point. But a lot of times, the motivation here by the state legislature is not always for limited or less government. It's to supplant state rules in place of local rules for things. I'm thinking of this thing that I'm still writing about and covering. I'm thinking of this this, this wrong-headed thing they did last year where they passed a law that basically allows people to prevent other people from going onto the beach in Walton County in the Panhandle. When the state government enters your life at the local level, they're as apt uh, to get it wrong as they are to get it right. My feeling is this, uh, Robin. I think that people who live in a municipality elect those people to run their city. They pay taxes to that city. They can vote those people out of office every couple of years. And, you know, there ought to be more of a trust and respect in local government decision-making than there is from Tallahassee. Okay, so I had read that long list of things that they were trying to regulate, but what actually passed? Locally, the big thing was the straws. It basically took teeth away from any existing ordinances that banned the use of single-use plastic straws and blocked any future ordinances from being made for the next five years. And the city of St. Petersburg, of course, I've heard you guys report on this before, has their own ordinance in place. And this legislation basically says that they cannot enforce that. The Whatever fines that would be implemented as a result of that, are null. So there's that. And I just want to piggyback on something else that that Steve was talking about with the home rule attacks. And that is that when you're talking about a conservative legislature, they remain at least verbally committed to not attacking home rule. The things that we see come up in legislative sessions, and this has been happening for several years now, it wasn't just this year, The things that we're seeing are exactly the dynamic between conservatism and liberalism. And they are things that take what's happening in a blue city and implementing their red politics from Tallahassee into that city government. So it really is hamstringing. Years ago, I'm sure folks remember the ban on local law enforcement doing anything about a man who had a backyard gun range feet from where children slept at night. And I mean, that's how pervasive it can become. And it's really just an inserting in of their differences in political ideology. 
I would like to make a point about Jose Oliva does have a logical argument about uniformity. We've got almost 500 cities and towns in Florida. But the answer to that problem is not a one-size-fits-all, all-knowing state government. The answer to that, and this is a much more difficult proposition, is I've lived in this state for a very long time and covered government and politics for a long time. There are too many cities in this state. There are too many little teeny tiny <laughs> incorporated communities uh, that people felt they w- And why do you incorporate? Because you want uh, self-determination. You want home rule. You know, do we really need about 30 cities in Pinellas County or Broward County? I don't think so, but that's the system that we have. And the right of those people to govern themselves, I think, should be respected. And not every preemption piece of legislation is controversial. We had the scooter bill go through this session that provides uniform statewide rules about where you can operate an electric scooter, which is becoming increasingly possible as a first mile, last mile transit solution, particularly in places like Tampa and St. Pete, where you have a lagging transit system. And that really helps with that final piece. There aren't too many people saying, you've usurped my power locally. How dare you? Most people were happy to see that legislation go through. Hmm. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about education. You had mentioned, Janelle. So teachers now will be able to volunteer to train to carry firearms. When I say all these things, I'm assuming that these are going to be signed by Governor Ron DeSantis. Let's talk about that a little bit. That's That was apparently much discussed. Well, there's no reason to indicate that Governor DeSantis will not sign That's this I'm particular saying. Let's law. He it. supported mm-hmm. it. So, yeah. um, so this, this bill... It doesn't necessarily say, okay, teachers can now do this if they want to do it because their school districts have to sign off on it. Right. And uh, Pinellas County, Hillsborough County, uh, I believe Polk County, several counties throughout the state, Leon, Broward, all of those school districts have come forward and said, no, we are not on board with this and we're not going to participate. Well, it's interesting because they put a lot of time and effort after last year's legislative session in figuring out their guardian programs. And they've been training community volunteers to become school guardians. So they already have systems in place. It's kind of odd now. For those who are opposed to teachers having guns in the classroom, they should be less worried about what happened this legislative session and more worried about what might happen next legislative session or the one after that or the one after that because there tends to be these baby steps. And last year was a baby step that put school resource officers, for example, in elementary schools that hadn't really been there before. And now it's expanding that even more to say, well, if you're a school district who wants to participate in this program, we're now giving you the green light right. to do that. So well, there, may- were, there were after Parkland, after the mass shooting at Parkland, we had a task force that's been working sure. on, on measures that would help in schools. And besides carrying firearms, there's also, Steve, money in that bill for greater mental health support in the schools. Is that correct? That's right. For the second year in a row, and that's that's a positive thing. Yeah. But but here we go again with mm-hmm. the with the guardian program. Uh, it's voluntary, and voluntary means that if a sheriff and a school board in one county want to have this program, they can do it. And if you don't want to have it, you don't have to do it. The interim sheriff in Broward County, Gregory Tony, who's the guy that Ron DeSantis put in place after suspending Scott Israel, came out recently and said he's adamantly opposed mm-hmm. to putting weapons in the hands of school teachers. Mm-hmm. So in Broward, where you had the Parkland tragedy, there is no consensus that 
giving guns to teachers makes people safer. Well, there's one place where you have some local rule then still in place. They can decide for themselves. Right. And by the same token, a few other places are going to do this for sure. Mm -hmm. Baker County, I believe, is also up in the North Florida, has also said that they would participate. Right. I'm Robin Sussingham, and you're listening to Florida Matters. We're taking a short break, and we'll be right back. This is Florida Matters. I'm Robin Sessingham, and we're talking about the just-concluded legislative session in Tallahassee. I'm here in the studio with Janelle Irwin. Janelle is a reporter for Florida Politics. And then from the studio of WFSU in Tallahassee, it's Steve Bosquet. Steve is a columnist and news analyst for the Sentinel Newspapers. So the legislature has approved three new toll roads without any discussion or any local government hearings or citizen input. This was a pet project of the Senate President Bill Galvano of Bradenton. So Steve, can you talk to us a little bit about that? Sure. And as we speak, environmental groups are rallying around trying to get Ron DeSantis to veto these roads. I don't think that's going to happen because this is the number one priority of the Senate president, who was very supportive of Ron DeSantis's agenda. And welcome to Tallahassee 101, how things really work. Let's just stop there but, for a second, because that, I think that's very interesting, because here comes Governor DeSantis on a platform of really wanting to do things for the environment. And then one of the first things to happen are these toll roads. But as you said, this is the Senate president who he really has to work with. That's correct. I don't think these toll roads are going to get vetoed. And my newspapers have editorialized strongly that they should be vetoed. These roads haven't been studied enough. There's not a clear and convincing case that they're needed, even though it is true the so-called Heartland Parkway between Polk County and Collier County has been on the drawing board in some manner or fashion since Jeb Bush was governor. I think we know something about living in this state, and that is that you cannot build enough lanes of, of asphalt to reduce congestion. And I submit as Exhibit A, I-4, across the middle of Florida. It's, it's a terrible, terribly congested highway, and they're spending billions to widen it. But the congestion seems unabated. I go to South Florida a lot and to Tampa Bay, and I think the congestion there is getting worse. Oh my gosh, Orlando's so, the worst. Orlando's the worst. And so <laughs> if Bill Galvano were, were on this discussion, he would say, that's why we need these roads. But the um, question is, do we need these roads where he's proposing them? He wants to create these rural corridors that will enliven and rejuvenate areas of the state that have long been ignored, like Sebring, Highlands County, Hendry County, places like that, because in Galvano's vision, the road brings water, brings sewer, broadband, internet, infrastructure, all that stuff, and before you know it, you have a thriving community there. But even Ron DeSantis has expressed unease with the extent to which we're becoming more and more reliant on making people reach into their pockets to drive on a highway in the state. Janelle, is there any way that this doesn't go through? What obstacles would these roads still have to face? I agree with Steve. I don't see this falling victim to the governor's veto pen. I will say one of the most powerful images that I've seen in this debate was one of those aerial satellite images of the state of Florida at night, and it shows where the light pollution is. And the area where the Suncoast Parkway would go through from the Tampa Bay region all the way up to the Georgia state line, 
most of that area is pitch black. So these are some of the really precious remaining wildlife habitats that exist in Florida. And you're going to see this highway go straight through them. And that's going to affect wildlife. You're going to potentially be seeing roadkill. We hear it about the Florida panther in South Florida. So I think that that's one of the big concerns among environmentalists. But as for it getting vetoed, I just don't see that happening. For years, the state has been on a trajectory where it's been all about the toll road, despite the fact that there is data-based evidence that shows that adding capacity does not reduce congestion. But after you have these laws in place, you are still going to have to have you're going to have a task force. You're going to have some sort of committees looking at this. You're going to have the Department of Transportation looking at this. I think there's environmentalists that are going to be included on the task force. I just don't see anything happening right away. No, of course not. I've covered transportation for quite some time in the Tampa Bay region, and I can tell you that the only certainty in the transportation world is that everything moves as slowly as possible, which ironically mimics our current congestion situation here in the Tampa Bay region. But yeah, we won't see anything happen anytime soon. All right. So you're mentioning that environmentalists were adamantly opposed to these toll roads. But there was a lot of good news in this budget for the environment. More than $600 million for Everglades restoration and Springs restoration. Steve, could you outline some of that? There's more money for Everglades restoration for Springs, for the whole red tide algae issue. That's about $683 million altogether. This was probably the centerpiece of Ron DeSantis's wish list. And that's a step forward. Now we have to see how well they use that money and, and what becomes of it. Environmental protection and change is an ongoing thing in the state, and you really don't see the results as quickly as we've seen the disasters of a lack of attention to the environment like we saw on the coastlines last summer. But that's but, the most um, money that's ever been put into Everglades restoration. It is, and it's going to be incumbent upon the environmental community and local elected officials and us in the news media to watchdog this and make sure the money is spent wisely because the legislature's track record in this area is not very good. There were years when they didn't fund Florida Forever. There was the issue with them not fully funding or implementing, I should say, Amendment 1, which was a 2014 constitutional amendment to protect land and water resources in the state. So other good news for, I know school superintendents are very happy about the increase in education funding, Janelle. They are. There was a pretty substantial increase to education funding, $235 million extra in per-pupil funding, I believe was the number. So that is not unsubstantial. But I still submit to you that there is a bad taste left in the mouths of public education officials who don't want to see copious amounts of taxpayer funds going to private entities because that is money. The, I mean, the argument is, is that these children are struggling. And if the public schools are failing them, they should have the opportunity to go to a school that's not going to fail them. But the problem with that is you're not going to be able to fix the problems in public schools when you're not adequately funding it. And when you're taking money away and putting it into private entities, you're losing out on those revenue it's harder to make that argument, though, when they're getting such a big spending increase for public schools. A lot of that is going to charter schools, though, and they operate with extremely less oversight. So, I mean, the charter schools don't get private property taxes. That was the thinking, I think, by sure. putting the money towards the charter schools because they don't get, as other public public schools do. They don't get the um, property tax money. What about Hurricane Michael recovery? That also got a big chunk of the budget. 
Yeah, so $220 million in total is going for Hurricane Michael recovery. That includes, there's a tax holiday included in that. There's also some recovery efforts for farmers who were affected by the storms, things like uh, tax credits on fencing, uh, replacing equipment, things like that. So uh, really good news for the panhandle on that regard. What was another highlight of the legislative session, Steve? One of the highlights of the session was the passage of an implementing bill for Amendment 4. And this is bad news for a lot of people because uh, there was a long, long debate that didn't end until the last hours of the session, which has to do with what is the definition of all terms of, of a sentence that must be completed before a felon in most cases can have their voting rights restored. And the legislature decided all terms includes fees and fines imposed by a court and restitution to a victim, also part of the four corners of a court sentence. Because this involves money and only money, Democrats, the the ACLU, League of Women Voters, other groups feel this is an onerous, unfair limitation on Amendment 4's intent, and it's going to create two classes of people, those who can afford to pay their fees and fines and those who can't, and it's going to result in a lot of people not voting. And it, it, it comes down to this fundamental question of what did voters intend? And we really don't know the answer to that question. But as I've pointed out in columns and opinion pieces, the legislature had decades to address this issue and chose not to do so. And so the voters spoke for themselves in the absence of legislative action. And by 65%, they decided that convicted felons, except for people convicted of murder and felony sex offenses, should be able to get their right to vote when they finished all terms of their sentence. The language is all terms of a sentence, including parole or probation. And so we're left with this conundrum whether did the voters really intend for this to include court costs and fines and fees? Some say yes, some say no. The other part of this that's kind of peeling back the layers of the onion a little bit is this question of the cycle of poverty, criminalizing poverty. These are the types of phrases that you hear when you're having these conversations about the Amendment 4 implementation bill. Locally here, we have uh, State Attorney Andrew Warren, who has worked very hard on issues that make it so that not paying fines and fees doesn't exacerbate a person's financial situation even more than it already is. For example, if you don't pay a speeding ticket, you eventually lose your license. So this is just kind of a bigger version of that at the state level that says if you can't pay your fines, you still can't vote. But if you can, you can vote. And I think what you're going to see the concern, the emerging concern come out of this is that white collar crimes those voters are going to be able to restore their rights, whereas some of the more repeated drug offenses, things like that, those are the individuals who are not going to be able to restore their rights. And briefly, before we go, Janelle, you had reported that Tampa Bay did very well in this budget. The Tampa Bay Area Regional Transit Authority was one of the region's biggest winners in the budget. Yes. So they got $4.8 million in the budget, which was more than what they asked for. They had originally asked for, I believe it was $2.5 million. About a million and a half of that is going to go to staff, which was much needed because the legislature rejiggered them in 2017 to make it a regional transit agency instead of regional transportation agency. And their goal is to coordinate efforts throughout the entire Tampa Bay region to establish transit that works across county lines. So this is money that is geared towards really pushing them in that direction. Although like anything in the legislature, there are some people who think that this is all bunk and they don't like T-BARDA and they want it to go away. 
way. So it just depends on who you ask. That is Janelle Irwin, a reporter for Florida Politics. And from the studio of WFSU in Tallahassee, we've been speaking with Steve Bosquet, a columnist and news analyst for the Sentinel Newspapers. Thank you both for being here. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Robin. That's it for today's show. You can tweet us at Florida Matters. Florida Matters is a production of WUSF Public Media. The engineer is George Govan. This week's show was produced by Stephanie Colombini and Steve Newborn. I'm Robin Sussingham. Thanks for listening. Thank you.